Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Hey, everybody. Everything's fine. People, welcome back to another episode of Everything's Fine. I am your host, Kyle Pagan, as always. No Oprah today, but we got a long podcast, a double feature for you. We got Rich Hoffman from The Athletic. We have Bob Wankel from Crossing Broad. Talking Phils, talking Sixers. Maybe I talk Phils with Rich. Maybe I talk Sixers with Bob. Who knows? But enjoy it. And uh, I'll talk to you on next Wednesday. No podcast Monday. Enjoy your holiday weekend. Go America. Sue's CBD. Sue's CBD is a local hemp-derived CBD product that contains no THC. They're all natural, vegan, gluten-free products are used to relieve stress and pain. So while you're watching the Phillies, pop one. It also helps aid in sleep and inflammation. And you can choose from products like gummies, tinctures, pain rubbing cream, and 10% of all their profits from every sale goes to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So go to soothelife.com. Use promo code FIND10, that's P-H-I-N-E-10, for 10% off at checkout. If you like the show, if you enjoy the show, it's a great way to support the show. All right, we are joined here by the Athletics Sixers reporter, Rich Hoffman. Rich, thanks for joining. Should be an interesting conversation. Got a lot to talk about in the land of the Sixers. How is it today? Kyle, another busy day, man. It's, not, <laughs> it's never boring with this team. All right, so let's get right into it. The entire fan base has switched to Dame Lillard or bust and what happened in like less than a week. Are we naive to think we have the pieces to get a deal done with Portland? I would say you're naive if uh, on, unless one scenario and that scenario is Dame Lillard saying I'm playing Philly with Joel Embiid, which I mean, it sounds like things are pretty weird in Portland right now. And you know, that, that situation went from kind of murky to, to pretty bad in about a week with the, uh, especially surrounding the hiring of Chauncey Billups and where, where Dame stands. I mean, honestly, going into the offseason, they had an uncertain offseason considering how their playoffs went. You know, Dame is, he's like 30, 31 years old. Like, he's got to win sooner rather than later. So I would say you are naive to think you have the pieces unless he decides he wants to come here because I think the recent NBA history would say that if a star wants to play in a certain place, it doesn't always happen, but a lot of times they can direct their way there. And if that's the case, then maybe the Sixers do have the pieces to get him, get here. So, so why would Dane be someone who would lift the Sixers to a championship? Obviously we'd be a better team than we are this year and whatnot. Defensively, you would argue we got worse, obviously. Why would Dame be that guy to lift the Sixers to a title contender? They would be really good if they had him, uh, just because he's Dame Willard. The uh, I would just say, like, the, I guess you're you're obviously trading Ben Simmons in, in that deal. Um, you know, Ben Simmons is a guy you don't have to guard in the playoffs when when things get, don't matter. Dame Willard, you have to guard from forty feet, thirty five feet. I don't know. Well, I don't know what the number is. Once he gets over half court, no doubt. So, and I, the other thing I would say is just, and this is. Not just, this is symptomatic of the Ben Simmons problem, but it's more of a, a team problem. The Sixers problem through the last three or four years is like usually you need an elite defense and elite offense to win a championship. I think they're pretty close with the defense right now. Like it's about as good as it'll get. But I think as they have learned over the past few years, it's really hard to be the the defense first team and end up winning four rounds in the playoffs. It just is. Like, I mean, it, it, it can happen, but you, you do need to be able to – and Dame Lillard is – I think he's like a top six or so offense by himself. Like, he's that good. And, I mean, like, to take that 
level of pressure off Joel Embiid. Like I think late in games, you know, it turns into the Dame Lillard show, which is a good mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, he's one of the best seven, eight players in the league. And, you know, to pair him with Joel Embiid, who is also in that category, it's it's not that complicated. Like I think, I, I think that would obviously be a huge deal if it happened, but we're not there yet. Yeah, it's it's it, you're tempering expectations a little bit. I mean, I once I hear something, you know, a star, I, I'm just gung ho like the rest of uh, the Sixers fan base and whatnot. But it would be nice to have a guy who you could trust to, like Jimmy Butler, to trust to have that last shot in the end in the uh, end of games. And the thing about Joel Embiid is, you know, you can't even worry about that. Like he doesn't want to be the guy because he loved having Jimmy on the team to take over games and whatnot. You know, is 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 that kind of what would you think Dame's role would be, really, if he came here, be that guy that's kind of like it's Dame time and 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 take over and and, and you think it'll be and B would still be okay with that now that he's an, an MVP candidate? No, I, I think Joel would generally be down with that without saying like he's pulling the strings and looking for a player. Like just in general, if you threw a player of Dame Lillard's caliber in his his lap, I think he. He's a smart guy. He would appreciate having a, a player, like a perimeter creator of Dame Lillard's caliber. And look, I think we could have said this even before Ben Simmons had that playoff series. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He doesn't do the pick and roll creation. He doesn't do the pull a three from, you know, 30 feet and make, make the defense chase over. And like Dame Lillard gets doubled all the way over there. So I think like the Sixers problems over the years have been primarily offensively. And having Dame Lillard, that's the key to, I don't know, you know, top six, top five offense. So, like, as far as a fit goes with Joel Embiid, that would be unbelievable. So I, I understand why people are very uh, gung-ho about it and are, and are looking – would be looking forward to it because the Sixers, I mean, ever since they drafted Markel Fultz, they've been looking for that perimeter creator guy, the guy who – can create offense at the end of games, and it's just easier than throwing the ball to Embiid, like a post-up guy. Who, And who, to his credit, I would say, he's diversified his offensive game. He's taken it to the perimeter more. He's he's found ways to score. But it's just easier to throw the ball to a guy 35 feet from the hoop. So if you can mix in Joel's more diverse, unique offensive game with a guy like Dame Lillard, who you can just run a pick-and-roll 35 feet from the hoop and get a good shot out of that every time, it would be a big deal. Do you think the NBA changing the new rules on on fouls and whatnot with rip throughs and everything? You think that'll affect Joel in, in any way? It might you know? I think it'll affect more perimeter players. But I'm interested just to think what you uh, have to say about that. I, I don't know if the rip through was in there, but I, I do think I, the guys who stuck out right away were Trey Young and Harden, and mm-hmm. it was the rules. From what I remember, it was a lot of like jumping sideways and unnatural motion type things. I don't want to say that Joel isn't a flop, isn't a flopper because he is absolutely a flopper, but it's like, that's what you got to do to, uh, to be smart. But as far as, yeah, he is concerned. I looked at it and I thought, well, if they're not banning the rip through, if they're not banning, you know, just him getting a guy to jump up and get contact, I'm not sure it'll affect him quite as much as these perimeter guys who, you know, I think if you were looking for a player who it'll probably affect the most on the Sixers, I think in a positive way, it might affect Matisse Thibel the most because he has to guard these guys throwing their bodies into him at all times. And he's trying to get these steals and they can, they can kind of prey on his over-aggressiveness. So no, I don't think it'll affect Joel quite as much, but to be fair, like I, I would like to see how this, uh, 
how this plays out when they actually enact these rules, because we've, we've had new rules in the NBA before that like, you know, they're like a point of emphasis for a couple of weeks and then mm-hmm. they stop. So we'll see. I, I do think they need to change that though. Some of the perimeter stuff is ridiculous. It's personally, to me, it's unwatchable. You know, when, you, when Harden's going to the line 20, 30 times a game and just stopping in front of guys and they're running into him and he's getting, you know, Trey Young, Young, yeah. Um, all right. We're five minutes into the interview and I haven't asked about Ben Simmons. It's, it's illegal in Philadelphia. So let me get to that. How far are we from Rich Paul and LeBron and LeBron requesting a Ben Simmons trade and handcuffing the Sixers and ruining all the value we're going to get back from, uh, from trading Ben Simmons? I don't know. I mean, I think this is a different scenario than some of the other ones that Rich Paul has dealt with. Like, I'll just point back to the most recent one that I remember is Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis did not crap the bed in the playoff series. And I think every team in the NBA kind of understood that, okay, Anthony Davis, he hasn't been able to lift up the New Orleans Pelicans to the heights, but they knew that, you know, he's still a very good player who, who can – you know, fit with a lot of different players. And the other thing was LeBron wanted him. He wanted him to play on the Lakers. I don't know, like, what team they're demanding Ben Simmons to go to. Also, I would say another part of this is I think Ben Simmons likes playing in Philadelphia for the most part. I'm sure he probably doesn't like the scrutiny he is getting right now. But I think, like, this is the only place he's played in the NBA. It's a big enough market. I, I think for for a lot of different reasons, he, he doesn't mind playing here. Uh, which is why I thought, I, I think some of the coverage of like, you know, he's got to get out of Philadelphia just because of the fans and all this stuff. I think that's a little bit overblown, just a little mm-hmm. bit. He might just need to leave because of all the baggage with the organization and just maybe he needs a fresh start. But but I, I'm not putting this on the uh, the market. So, yeah, I guess that would be my question. Like, they, they it was reported that there was no trade demand reached. Um, I, I, I don't know if he's in a position to demand a trade at this point because he's not as hot of a commodity, I would say, as some of these other high-profile guys, including Anthony Davis, who, who Rich Paul basically pushed to the Lakers. It's got to be really good that Daryl Morey came in and, and, and Rich Paul is dealing with a guy who's had success in the NBA instead of, I'd be, I'd be scared shitless if, if Elton Bram was the one leading these negotiations and whatnot. Um, what do you think about, I personally think he's on the team next year. I think he's on the team in terms of a 20 to 30 game kind of tryout, get the trade value back up. Is that crazy? Could you see that? Or do you see him getting moved this, this summer? No, I don't, I don't think it's crazy at all. I mean, I think in the, in the day following the, the game, there was a lot of takes, a lot of coverage. It was like, that's his last game in Philly. He can't play again. And by the way, I understand that reaction completely. Like, he was that bad in the playoffs. And it was that, honestly, it was that tough to watch. That said, he is like literally their last chip they have to trade that has even remote value before you get to Joel Embiid. I, I know they, they have Maxi, they have Thibel, they have a lot of their picks. Like those are, those are good things. I don't want to, uh, to crap on them. But like real trade value, get something back, like a, a star, a very good starter, that level of player. It's Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. That's it. So Ben really is the last card they have to play. So I think just like looking at Daryl Morey's history, like I don't think he's going to react emotionally on this where maybe he does want to trade him, but he's not going to move him if he thinks he'll be able to get a better deal down the line. And I got to imagine Ben, his trade value is at an all-time low. Now, what does that mean? I mean, it only takes one team to give him a good offer this offseason and then – 
sayonara, see you later. So I'm not sure it's like it's necessarily a black and white thing. Um, I, I guess the risk of keeping him though would be what if he's what if he's the playoff player in, yeah. in the regular season? I, I guess that's what, like so much of this is clearly mental. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure what you're going to get back from. Now, I also think he could just even rebound to his normal regular season form, and then maybe his trade value pops up a little bit. It's, I, I guess there is a little bit of a risk of, like, what does he come back like? I, I guess that, that would be my question. But, no, I do not think it's crazy that Daryl Morey does not have a demand that he has to trade him this summer. No. So Doc said in his press conference, he said the word right, like five times, six times in two paragraphs. I'm probably putting the tinfoil hat on, reading the tea leaves. <laughs> could we be switching Ben Simmons or at least trying to switch Ben Simmons to a righty? Like, it, could, you, could you imagine, sit down there, you know, be Doc for a second. You hand Ben Simmons the packet that they do at the end of the year, the exit interviews. Could it be like, we want to see you shoot righty? And Daryl Morey's out there, you know, once a month looking to see how the progress is going. Could be. I, I, I will say, and I, I know that that has been – a hot topic for a long time. Not to say I haven't wondered it a little bit. Just you, you look at the way I'm, I'm left-handed. I, I look at the way he shoots his free throws. His elbow is way out. Yeah. That is how I would shoot right-handed if I was playing. Um, so, so, and obviously all of his layups, he finishes with his right hand too. So that's, look, I, I think that's fair. My question, and honestly, I think if this was were a 15 or 16-year-old player, you know, trying to figure that out, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. I am really curious. Like, can you actually make that switch in what what do they have? Like three months until yeah. the regular season? I mean, the amount of muscle memory that has gone in to shooting left-handed, that that's why this is a tough situation because I, I don't I think the idea of him shooting right-handed seems seems good. Like I think that's it, clearly the left-handed stuff is not working at whatever level. Um but I wonder if they think this is more of a mental problem that it might just be easier to try and fix that, maybe make some tweaks on his lefty form. I just, I think whatever answer I give to you here, it's, it's not going to be a great one because yeah. he's either going to have pretty bad form left-handed or he's going to be trying something completely differently. So no, I do not think it is impossible, but man, what a story that would be like that. I, I would, even if it's the right move, I would, uh, I would take that news with a healthy degree of skepticism that he could get that turned around in time to play an NBA basketball season with a shortened off season. So yeah, we'll it was see. definitely a facetious question, but man, as a Sixers fan, you just you just latch to hope. I mean, they've yeah. sold us hope for the last eight years with the process. So you just latch to anything because you look at it, it's like the guy's never shot in four years. No. He's not going to magically just to shoot decide to shoot in five. Nobody's ever come into the league and not been a shooter and said, Hey, listen, this year I'm going to shoot and I'm going to shoot with at a, at a good or high percentage. So it's like, that's the thing where I want to talk about a little bit with you is like people want him to shoot, but if he, if he shoots 20% from 15 and out, he's just hurting the Sixers. And it sucks that we saw what he did in the playoffs because you could actually make that argument before, you know, he just decided to not be um, an offensive threat at all. You know, it's it's not – I mean, Ben Simmons does not have to shoot because it's not good for the Sixers. Would you, would you agree with that? Like, take the playoffs out of it before. Like, Ben Simmons is a good player. He's a good defensive player. He's not really an offensive threat. But 
he can do a lot for a contender. Yeah, I mean, it's the problem you run into, though, is that when you get into the playoffs, he has nothing. He has nothing, and then he decide. I mean, then he decided to do nothing. So there are a couple of things. I first off, I agree with you. Like the idea of you know him shooting a, a lot of people say he needs to shoot a fifteen footer, and I'm thinking like you have to be really good to shoot mid range jumpers in the NBA. Like, um, believe it or not, a- analytically, you know, people get on analytics, folks, when you know a player gets hot from the mid range, when Kawhi or somebody gets hot from the mid range in the playoffs, the, the analytics people don't hate that. The, the reason they don't hate that is because in the playoffs you get surrendered a, a certain shot and that's often you have to take the, the mid-range jumper. And these are star players that shoot like 50% from mid-range. Th- those are good shots. So for Ben Simmons to get the 50% on a jump shot, that seems like a tough one. The, the one that my colleague Derek Bodner and I always um, always harped on, and it was something that Brett Brown brought up when he challenged him to shoot one shot per game, is the corner three. You only have to make that like 33 and I watch him practice those all the time before games and he makes a decent amount of them. I, I know it's not the prettiest form in the world, but if you're going to leave him wide open, that is the one shot that I think is unforgivable because, you know, you obviously you get three points for it and you don't have to make as many of them because of that. So that, that would be the, the one thing. Now, the, the other thing is if you don't want to shoot jump shots, then you have to attack the rim like a man. You just do. And I think it's pretty clear at this point that Ben does not want to shoot free throws, even in the best of times. He didn't want to shoot free throws in the playoffs at all. That's how you get that pass at the end of the game. But he he was, I think, Doc, at the beginning of the year, asked for 10 free throw attempts per game. He didn't even get five. And it's, you know, you, you can see it. He's such a he's such an <laughs> interesting player, man. He's I've never seen a more physical player until the time when your physicality gets rewarded with free throws. Like, watch mm-hmm. him post up under the rim. He'll be throwing guys under the basket to get this great position. And then if he went up strong, he would probably get fouled. But a lot of times it's a hook shot after that, which is like a low, low value. You won't get fouled. It's pretty when it goes in, you know, maybe people will forget when he doesn't. Um, so that's the, that's the other thing I would say. Like if you're not going to shoot and, and I understand the limitations of that because you are not a good shooter, you need to get to the line a ton. You need to find other ways to be involved. And so it's a failure on a, a bunch of different fronts in that, in that way. I want to move over to the the Embiid. The Supermax is is looming. The extension, yeah. um, he can now rego- renegotiate a four-year, $191 million extension. It would start at 42.5, go all the way up to 52.8 by 2027-26-2027 season. But he could refuse it to sign it this year and wait to sign a five-year Supermax extension that would go to 2028. With the injury history of Embiid, Listen, I'm not saying you don't sign it, or I'm not saying you don't sign him. That's a crazy person's thought process. But, you know, what do you think with the, with the Embiid injuries that will be paying him $52 million at age 33 if he decides to sign it this year? It's scary. <laughs> I, got, I got nothing. There's nothing no, better, that, no better answer, and it's just scary. Yeah, It's scary, but you have to do it. You have to, yeah. I, unless you want to trade him this year. Like, you know what I mean? I, mm-hmm. This is the guy who's, I mean, he's he's playing at an MVP level this year. And he's, I, I mean, I don't think uh, emotion should play that much of a factor, but it does. Like he's, I mean, he's the face of Philadelphia sports right now. He's, yeah. I mean, he's, he's probably the most popular athlete in the entire city. 
at, at this point, which is impressive for a non-Eagle to be, honestly. Yeah. Um, so, and I just think like you've tanked and you've lo- you've lost games and you've tried to get better and better through all of these years. You have a guy who's in his prime right now. Yeah, his, his injuries are terrifying. But I mean, if you have him on your team, you know, you're probably going to be a top three seed just, just with his presence alone. And obviously he needs some help around him to get over that hump in the playoffs that he hasn't done yet. But I mean, I, I don't really think it's much of a question. Like if he, if he says he's willing to sign that Supermax, you, uh, you push it across the table to him, he signs it and you say, thank you. Uh, it, I mean, obviously it would be nice. His last contract, Colangelo, in one of the few good things I think he did, he did get some injury protection on it, which ultimately didn't come true, but you know, nice to have, I don't know. I don't really know if the Sixers are in that position again, because Joe has given them good years and obviously he could potentially go somewhere else after this season. But I think when you have that level of player who likes being in Philadelphia, um, I think you just have to have to bite the bullet. But yeah, I mean, his injuries are horrifying. We we saw it this year. (laughs) So this is the reason you go all in basically because the, because the supermax is, is looming and you do whatever you can, in my opinion, to surround your star star player who will be making $52 million, 33 years old to try to win a title. It's no different than what Portland tried a couple years ago. You know, Dame Lillard, he, he wants out. He, uh, he's got three years left on that supermax contract he signed where he's making, I don't know if he's making 50 in the, in the final years. I think it's actually pretty similar to what Joel is. So it's right around there. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I think you do. I mean, he's he's proven to be a special difference-making player who, you know, unless you know something that he is a complete ticking time bomb in the next few few years, maybe that's that's the case. I mean, I, I understand that there's probably not going to be you know a 100% answer available to the Sixers. They don't know if he's going to get hurt or not. But I don't know. That would be. That would be pretty wild if they traded Joel Embiid. Uh, obviously, you get a lot of stuff for him, but it, it just doesn't seem like a realistic outcome to me. Yeah, I think the city would burn itself down. Yeah. Um, so injuries for the playoffs this year. It's been. I mean, yesterday we had you know Giannis go down. Game three, we had Trey Young go down. Do you think this is going to go down as the worst season in NBA history in the last like twenty years? I mean, if you think about it. What was a memorable game from the Sixers season? The Utah game and the Lakers game? Those are the only two I can really think of. The second half, absolutely blue. And with all these injuries and whatnot, the playoffs aren't even, you know, the greatest and whatnot. Is this, is this going to be mem- uh, remembered as one of the worst seasons in NBA basketball in history? I'll sure remember it as that. The, uh, the Sixers' schedule down the stretch was Ugh. ridiculous. Nobody I mean, played. Were- they, they were playing bad teams and, and the amount of guys who were out. And I don't want to say that the Sixers – like, I think in a fully healthy year next year with, you know, an 82-game schedule, if they just ran back this team and Simmons is roughly back to the same player he was and Embiid's okay, like he's he's able to uh, to come back, like I think they would be a top seed again. So I don't want to take everything completely away from him and say the regular season was completely a joke because they also dealt with injuries this year as well too. I mean, it was so bad though, the basketball at the end of the, <laughs> the year. The basketball, it was, yeah. It was so bad and – I mean, they were playing every other day. It was, I mean, it, it was ridiculous. Jam jam packing that those games into it. I think the injuries are, are clearly, you know, it's clearly a part of it. I think what's disappointing about it is that the NBA needs to play fewer games, in my opinion. Thank you. I've been on this this kick, this hill for like a couple of years now, especially this season. What's your what's your hopeful like game uh, total? 
Well, my, my hopeful game total is is much more measured than what it should be. I think, I think like the, the total that I would like to see, and this is just this is just me in ideal world thinking about what I'd like. I think fifty eight games would be my favorite. You just play one team. You play a home and home with every other team in the league. You play two and a half times a week, two times a week, whatever it is, and those games have real meaning. Because I mean, here, there's a couple things that that I. I would associate with why you would want to do shorter games. One, the games will matter more, right? That'll be a bigger deal. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is injuries. And, and these guys, I mean, the way this sport is played, I am so sick of people saying Michael Jordan played 82 games and, you know, the, all these guys in the 80s played 82 games. It's harder on your lower body to play NBA basketball in the modern era with how fast they play, with how you have to run to the three-point line. Like, watch a game from the 80s it looks like a team is on a power play in hockey. Like they're just like standing. It looks like you're, you're playing like four on four, half court at the park. Yeah. Like when you're, when you're playing eight feet off a guy, who can't shoot. That is everybody. So it's, it's a much harder sport to play it in. And uh, you're, I think you're seeing with a lot of these injuries, I don't want to blame all of them on the schedule. Like injuries are going to happen, mm-hmm. but I mean, I think the, the risk of playing this many games in a short time, like, of course you're going to have, I would have been stunned if they had like a relatively healthy season here. So yeah, it's been a bad year. I'll put it that way. I like, I like 72. I just would be okay with 72 being stretched out. Yeah. I would also be okay with 58. I mean, the best thing about football is 16 games, 16 games mean a ton. Their ratings are pretty good, right? Yeah, they do pretty good. Yeah. yeah. That's, and that's the problem though, is that, you know, I don't think the owners want to give away no. games. I don't think the TV, the local TV deals, I think as we've learned over the past year, which is important because of how they handled the bubble, they have to play like 70 something games. They have to all, that's why only, you know, the Sixers play on national TV all the time, but only 10 of them are not on Comcast at the same time as well, you know, or NBC sports Philly, sorry. Um, Now, so that that's the other workaround. And I'm not sure we're ever going to get around that, but, I don't know if I were Adam Silver, he's, you know, he's got a lot of stuff on his plate, but trying to find a way to make the economics work and play fewer games. I'm telling you, I think that's the most important thing the league could do. I think you sell them to the streaming companies. Yeah. So the NBC affiliates to Peacock, you sell the other ones to another streaming platform. Maybe you all go to Amazon. I don't know. Someone that could really eat, eat the cost. I mean, also think about too, how many players sit out these games for load management and, I don't blame the teams in that regard because I think it's, it's clear that all people care about when they're talking about, you know, the bottom line and the success of your team, as we're seeing with the Sixers this year, how did you do in the playoffs? The Sixers had a really good regular season. They sucked in the playoffs. So nobody cares about that regular season now. So why would you treat the regular season as this massive deal and go all out to win games? So I think the league has to step in and say, all right, we're going to shorten your amount of games, but you have less of an excuse now to rest some of these guys for, for no reason. Because I understand, like, if you're a fan and you're, you're trying to pay to see Joel Embiid in some, some random city and, and he doesn't play because of load management, that sucks. I, I, I understand that. All right, one more and I'll get you out of here. Um, the Embiid tweet that sent NBA Twitter and Sixers Twitter into a frenzy after Game 7 just to be a destructive force. Walk me through it. Did you just like tweet it and put your phone down and go get more quotes from the, uh, yeah. from the, from the press conference? That seems what it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. And honestly, it's something that, that I still feel a little bad about just because I've seen over the years, 
especially with, with the Sixers, who are a very highly scrutinized team, if you don't quote or if you don't tweet the full quote out, sometimes that can get twisted. Hmm. And now, so I will say, like in my defense, when I when I first heard it, do I think Joe was trying to take a little bit of a shot at Ben? Like, yeah, I mean, he he was asked what the turning point of the game mm-hmm. was, and the first thing he mentioned was we had a shot, we had two points, and then we had one. So I I think I I kind of tweeted that, but honestly, man, like it was the last press conference. It was right after the game. There were zooms and stuff like that. So I kind of just tweeted what, what came to mind. I, I honestly did not expect that to blow up. At that you were level. the only one who had kind of the quote. You, a lot of other guys had the quote. Yours just happened to catch the right algorithm and just shoot to the moon in terms of, in terms of Twitter. Did you come back on your phone and we're like, what, what the fuck? Like what yeah, is was, going on? Yeah. I was writing for, for a little bit after it was over. I, I, I wasn't like yeah. checking Twitter that much. He was, I think he was the last person to speak. He generally, generally is. Um, yeah. And I, I guess it, it just went out there and I mean, it's, it, you do have to be fair. Like, even if I, even if I thought he, he said something like you, you gotta say the full quote and I, you know, I got a lot of shit for that. And that's, you know what, that's, that's okay. Sometimes you make that mistake and the best you can do is just kind of, kind of try and learn from it and do something differently. Cause I mean, it is funny, like a lot of the year when I'm at these press conferences, like if it's, if it's Ben Simmons, um, if he's making fun of the wizards broadcaster for calling him overrated and I just get half of that quote, I I don't think anybody's going to get the blowback. Like, I think, I think if you express the full thing, um, but in that case, I mean, I guess emotions were just like running really high. Yeah. Obviously, the Sixers had just lost a playoff series, so we were know, looking. Think- we were looking for anything to jump down someone's throat about being like, "Oh, you know, you see, this is why they can't win." Ben Simmons got has to go. And when I did, none of your buddies texted you and were like, "Hey, dude, congrats on going viral or whatnot." Like that's <laughs> kind of you got to have better friends. You got to surround yourself with better people, in my opinion. No, 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 man. My my friends, they uh, they don't care that I'm a writer. Um, <laughs> the uh, no, yeah, it's just I, you know, and it's like a learning lesson. Like I guess whenever the Sixers lose a playoff series from now on, I'm going to take extra care <laughs> to not to to tweet out the full thing and and a tweet thread, Joe. And the problem with Embiid too is that he is he gives really long answers, which. Again, not a problem in general for me, but when you're trying to tweet out what his quotes are, sometimes you need the the full full answer. And I uh, I, I am sensitive to that too because I, I see other people do it, yeah. and, and there are times where I'm like, I, I was on that press conference. I'm not sure that's mm-hmm. a, a completely fair representation of it. And so, you know, made a mistake. You live and you learn, and it's. Uh, I, but to be fair, like, I, I do think, like, he meant, like, what's the turning point of the game? I, I do think he, he kind oh, of... Oh, I wouldn't disagree with you. Yeah. I wouldn't disagree with you. And I actually look, went back and watched the video, and, you, and you're right. And he stumbles over his words and whatnot. And he's, and he's saying this, and it looks like he's distracted, and he's trying to get the right words and everything. So, like, yeah, he took a couple pause breaks and whatnot. The, the other thing, too, that, that, that's tough about it, it was just such an emotional... People were going nuts that night. I mean, rightfully so. That was a terrible loss. It's one of mm-hmm. the worst losses I've seen in Philadelphia oh, in a long time it, to do the, the press conference after, like right after the game be like, I'm not talking again for the rest of the year. Like even when they lost to Toronto, they talked the next day in Philly, mm-hmm. which like, I don't know, even, you know, a bad night, night of sleep can give you 
a certain degree of, uh, of perspective, but yeah, no, I should, I should have, I, I, you know, it's funny. I looked at it. I was like, why did this go viral? Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't tweet the whole thing out. Let's, let's delete it. And like, let's move on. I don't want to be considered that, that person who's just like looking for clicks or looking for, for cloud on that stuff. So not, not my best moment, but also not something that, um, I'm losing a ton of sleep over because I, I, I just won't do it again. You know? Yeah. I don't think anyone's ever looking at you and being like, Rich is out there just to, just to fuck people over. Exactly. And that's, um, I, I, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm protective of that. I'm not trying to do that. So before I let you go, any good Mark Zumoff stories now that he's retired? Yeah. I mean, just the, I mean, just, just in terms of covering the team for the past few years and being around him, I, the only thing I can really say about him is just, I mean, just a better guy, even than a broadcaster, you know, he, I, I feel like he, he always was just nice to me, even when I was starting, like, Hey, that was a great story you wrote yesterday. Like I used that in the broadcast. Oh, hey, awesome. um, you know, how, you know, he would ask, how's, how's my dad doing all the time? Like, and, and be talking about that type of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a sad moment just because I feel like, you know, and I'm going to try and talk to him for a story over the next few days. He said he would the, uh, I think it's sad just because it feels like he still has a lot left in him. He's still really good yeah. at, at what is at his job. So um, I think it was I, the pandemic a little bit, kind of just sitting in your house and thinking like what the meaning of life is. And I think that's a lot of things. You could say that about Scott O'Neill, maybe too, or, or guys that, you know, there was a Warriors executive who stepped down. You know, I think it's just kind of like looking at like, what is life? And is, is, is life all about commentating basketball? And, and he said, it. he's like, I still want to you know travel and, and cook and learn a new language. And he's, I mean, he, you can tell, like, he loves the Sixers, but he's, he's that type of guy. Like, he's, he's a very normal, curious guy who I think has a life outside of what the Sixers are. And, yeah, I do wonder, too, it, it also probably was a little tougher in this year to commentate from the studio for road games. Like, mm-hmm. they weren't traveling at all. So, I'm sure, I'm sure that, was, that was a weird year for him, too. But, yeah, if there's anything I, I would say just about Zoo, I, I don't really have any – any crazy stories from the road, just that he was a guy who from the moment I started covering the Sixers was really nice to me. And you could just have a really good conversation with them behind the scenes. It was like always curious about what you're up to, like where, where you were thinking, all that stuff. So as good of a broadcaster as, as he is and like legendary level broadcaster, I, I would, I would put him up as a person in the same level. Awesome, man. I know we had a lot of technical difficulties. Thank you so much for, for staying with me and whatnot. Where can people find you? And obviously people can read you at The Athletic. They can, they can read my tweets that are, uh, that are, that are fully quoted now, <laughs> uh, or, or I won't tweet them out. That's it. That's it. Rich underscore Hoffman, one F, two N's. I spell it a little weird. Huh? The Athletic, go, go check that out. Um, and then I have a podcast with Derek Bodner yeah. called Sixer Speed. Those are, those are the three main places. Yeah, you and Derek are great. I mean, you guys are like complete opposites. He, he loves deer, and every time I run into you, you love beers with the fellas. I always run into you at the, <laughs> walking into a bar, walking out of a bar. We're in the same bar and whatnot. So you guys are you guys have a good uh, – your dynamic is special because you're such opposites. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> awesome, Rich. Thanks so much, man. All right, it's Friday. Wankle Fridays. Doesn't have the same ring to it, but hey, what are you going to do? Bob Wankle joins the show from Crossing Broad. If you like Wankel Wednesdays, well, you get one on Friday. All right, Bob. In honor of Reese Hoskins, let's get the good stuff out of the way first. I will, I will go first. You can go second. Um, from now until the meteor returns and destroys this planet, I don't think the Phillies will be absolutely dog shit 
at least one of those years. Anything you'd like to say? Glass half full, man. Yeah. Uh, so you're telling me before, like in the next hundred years, because like a hundred years, like everything's going to be underwater, right? Yeah. So <laughs> the Phillies have a hundred years to to make the playoffs. Is that what you're telling me? Or, yeah. or it not be absolute, as you said, dog is it dog shit? Is that dog what you said? Yeah. They'll have a winning. Well, they'll have a winning season from now until the 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 meteor, I guess, comes or the planet is underwater in a hundred years. I didn't know you were a, a global warming scientist, but I'm not really a global warming guy by nature, but I, I, I think that that's probably in play. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, listen. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think I agree with you. Uh, it's hard to say though, right now, after watching what we've watched the last like two weeks here, really in particular, it's been, it's been tough. It's really been a bad product. Like that's been the, the biggest takeaway. It's just, it's not fun to watch. You know that even when things are going well, that you're, you're probably going to get punched in the groin before things are all said and done. Uh, and as a fan, I think that that's really, really deflating. And uh, there's no reason uh, to, to really want to invest in it as a fan. And I totally understand why, like, hardcore Phillies fans or, like, even fringe sports fans that want to buy into this team uh, aren't doing it. Like, who, who can blame them, right? The Phillies are, the, are your drunk friend. Who always goes out and gets drunk and you're like, oh God, I, I don't want to drink with this guy and everything, you know, between like 11 and 12, he's okay. And then somehow between 1230 and two, the guy just is an absolute mess. But then you go out with him and you're like, oh, he's actually doing pretty good today. We're, we're 12, 1230. He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't got kicked out yet. Then, you know, you guys are just sitting around at 1am and all of a sudden he pukes on his shoes and gets kicked out. And it's like, damn, I really thought we had, I really thought we had one today. Yeah. He's, he's, taking a dump behind a 7-Eleven, <laughs> 1.15 in the morning. Top. Oh, I don't know if you've ever been out of Seattle. That's where I'm at right now. Many a men have gotten popped for peeing behind that Wawa in Seattle next to the dead dog. Yeah, uh, I, I know a couple of those guys. Believe yeah. it or not, I'm not one of them, but uh, I do know a few of those guys. I, I uh, sometimes associate with such gentlemen. So, listen, you know, man, like the Phillies, I just – I don't know. Uh, I don't really know what to say that hasn't already been said, uh, not just this season, but really like the last three seasons since mm -hmm. they've kind of become competitors or, you know, a team that's really supposed to be like in the mix. Um, what I will tell you is this. If like you're looking for something positive to latch on to, like give me something, Bob, trying to accommodate Reese Hoskins here. The positive is that they're not as bad individually as they play as a whole. Like, they should be better. They very rarely ever all click on all cylinders at the same time. One guy will get hot, another guy will go cold. They'll pitch well, then they don't hit. They hit well, then they don't pitch. Like, there, there should just be, from a straight law of averages, a situation at some point this season for a week or two weeks where it all comes together and they just play well at the same time. And if they do that, this division we thought was going to be this powerhouse from top to bottom. It's not. It's a very winnable division. Teams are underachieving. And, like, the door is open if they just want to go up to it. But they, they haven't to this point, and I don't know that they will, but they can. Bob, they should be 8-0 the last eight games. They should be. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you a know, total mismanagement of a team. Like, I, I'm starting to think, is Joe Girardi trying to get fired? Like, he, he legitimately – is kind of crossing into a Doug Peterson territory where it's like, he just looks miserable. He looks miserable when he's talking to you. He looks miserable when he's, when he's on the field. He just looks like he, like they're just at each other's throats privately him versus the team. 
Yeah, I feel a little bit uh, – I don't feel bad for Joe Girardi because I think that a lot of this is self-inflicted. Like, there are a lot of decisions that he's made, and it's not just, like, revisionist history. Like, actively in the midst of making the decision, I'm going, what What the hell is he doing? Yeah. Why is he doing this? And we could talk about Neftali Feliz coming in with the tying run at the plate against Cincinnati on Monday night. He hasn't pitched in four years. The guy hasn't pitched in over 1,400 days, and he was really good in AAA. Like, and I will say that. Like, he was really good at Lehigh Valley. I understand that this bullpen has been horrendous. It's kind of like let's throw it against the wall and see if it sticks sort of situation. But, like, you can ease Neftali Feliz into to less important – roles in less important situations and let the guy get his feet wet, you know, mm-hmm. for a dude that hasn't pitched in the major leagues in four years. And then you come back and use him against the Marlins two days later in a tie game in, in a situation where Miami has all the momentum. The guy has no confidence. He has no conviction in his ability at that point. And you go back to him there and then you blink and they're down by three runs. And to me, that's bad managing. And like, you can talk about, you can talk about how he only has X amount of relievers available on any given night. Like Joe Girardi doesn't want to throw guys on back-to-back nights. So oftentimes he goes into games with a short card in the bullpen. Okay. But like at some point you have to, you have to force the issue. You have to pitch guys back-to-back nights. You have to go to places where they're uncomfortable. I know he's trying to preserve their health and effectiveness in the second half, but the Phillies have to win like right now. Mm -hmm. They have three or four weeks here in July to kind of prove that, that they aren't, going to be a fourth place team that finishes with 75 wins. You've got to make that front office believe. And so I just don't understand how this team can continue to punt on the here and now as they continue to just kind of you know, sit five, six games back. If they would have played semi-competent baseball over the last 10 days, this team would be two games out right now. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Why, why is the, the bullpen so depleted? I, maybe that's a, I should know this, but like it just seems so weird to just consistently have a depleted bullpen and going into games after games. Well, they had a ton of days off uh, during the month of June, but now they're in the midst of uh, quite a run here. Like they had the doubleheader on Friday against New York, and then they they played on uh, Monday. You know, they didn't have an off day Monday, and now they jump right into it with the Marlins and Padres. And so they're on a nice little run of games here, but, but really the, the bullpen should not be depleted the way that it is. Now on I guess it was Wednesday night with, with the Marlins, the, the situation where they went to Naftali Feliz. Joe Girardi had said that he wanted to go to Ranger Suarez in that spot, but he had uh, back spasms that he experienced in pregame warm-up. So it's like it's, it was just always something. But by and large, I mean, I think it's some of the Phillies' philosophy trying to protect guys by not overusing them that leaves them shorthanded and makes them have to go to guys that really have no business pitching in those spots. So it's a little bit about mismanagement, I think. And I think it's also compounded by the fact that the bullpen just isn't very good. But even with that said, if you look at the numbers of those individual pieces in the bullpen, not that good, right? But they're not that bad. We're not talking about like guys that are running out with seven and a half ERAs. So I just don't think they're very talented, but I also don't think the manager's gotten the most out of what he has. Spencer Howard is one that's, that's speaking of mismanagement, he's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I know you don't want to ask Joe Girardi the same questions, you know, how, why are this team so bad? So can you ask him for me, like, what does, uh, how does Spencer Howard get back and forth from Lehigh Valley? Are we doing like a chopper? Cause it's like, it's like a two and a half hour drive. It's just enough where it's like, it's, it's an annoying drive. Like, could you imagine Spencer Howard having to catch an Uber every time he's called up or designated? 
Because it, it has to have been at least almost 10 times this year. It's funny you say that. I was actually off earlier this week, and uh, I spent a couple of days in Lake Wall and Paul Pack. Oh. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, so I did that drive back to, like, from into, like, the Philly region. I know it's not quite the same area, but, like, it's like a two-and-a-half-hour yeah. drive. I thought to myself, I'm like, this sucks. You know, if like, you had to do this, like, a, a couple times over, like, a two-week stretch, like, I wouldn't want to do that. So They're going to break Spencer Howard just because of that drive. That's just too, too long to think. They've broken him. They did. Um, you know what, man? Like, the way that they've used Spencer Howard has uh, certainly been head-scratching, and it's been talked about a lot, and it's been written about a lot. And I asked Joe Girardi, I guess, when they were in uh, – where were they? I guess they were in San Francisco, uh, Father's Day. And Spencer Howard came in. They skipped him in the rotation. He pitched, like, a meaningless seventh inning. And I was like, yo, like, you know, how do you use – you know, how are you using this guy right now? Like, do you think that he can, you know, reach his full development if, if he doesn't really have a defined role? Joe went on this explanation about how he does have a defined role and it's been articulated to him and he knows what to expect. But then, you know, a week and a half later, they turn around and they send him to AAA basically saying, like, this isn't working out. We think you're a starter. We're going to have you pitch down there for the remainder of the year to try to become a starter. So it was like an admission that, yeah, we really didn't have a plan for the guy. They, they wanted him to be a starter in spring training. Then they started to work him into a relief role. Then they brought him back as this like quasi opener. You cannot, you cannot, you know, you can't develop like that. Yeah. You know? It's a mental and, thing at one point. That being said, like it does fall on the player too. Like, this is one thing that we do. Like, we get so angry about Philly's management for all of these different things. And we did this with Scott Kingery. It was like, well, you know, Scott Kingery didn't become Dustin Pedroia because he had to play four different positions as a rookie. Like, at some point, it falls on the player, too. Like, you've, you've got to take ownership. Like, you're the one getting in the box. You're the one stepping on the mound. Like, you've got to do it. And and to this point, like, we're talking about Spencer Howard being, what, 25 years old? And, and like, it's it's not like he's, he's in his first year of professional ball here. Like, he should be a little bit further along than he's shown at this point, you know, and the Phillies could say our bullpen's bad. He's really nasty. He's been really successful, some great numbers against guys the first time through the order, but mm-hmm. long term, it's probably the right thing for this organization to think about 2022 and beyond. If you really have conviction that this dude is going to be a starter, then you can put him number three, number four in your rotation. You got to figure this shit out. But the numbers don't show that the numbers, like you said, he, this kid looks like he's going to be primed to be a reliever. I mean, what is it? He's, People are batting like what 180. Um, teams are batting 180 against him the first the first way through the rotation. The yeah. Lineup. Well, the, you know the, the the thing I guess is this, and I know this sounds crazy, especially being in Philadelphia the last two years with how bad this bullpen's been. But like starting pitching is still a much more valuable commodity than relievers. And so I think the thought here is like let's take one last really good stab at this with him as a starter and and hope it sticks. And if it doesn't we can always kind of scale back and then convert them. Like we can always say like, okay, now go take down one or two innings. Like that's going to be your new role. But I think that the Phillies feel like they had so much invested in this guy, the, the way that he was thought of uh, throughout baseball and certainly within the organization. Like I understand why they want to take one last really good shot with Spencer Howard uh, as a starting pitcher. And you just can't do it at the major league level with where this team's at right now. How far are we from, I've been, I've been seeing a little bit of chatter of it. How far are we from Bryce Harper needs to be shipped? Yeah, I know that's getting talked about a lot. Um, I, I just certainly don't see it in season. Like, if Bryce Harper were to be shipped in the next month, uh, that would be the all-time stunner in Philadelphia mm-hmm. trades, I think, in the history of the city. 
Uh, I get the idea of like this team's not really getting to where it wants to go. You have a lot of money and years tied up in, in him. He's probably not really happy with where the organization's at. So like there's, there's some sense to it, but I, I don't see that. And uh, I don't see it at the end of this off season either. I think the Phillies are really in this, this tough place where they're, they're tied into some pretty big time talent, with big time dollars, and they're going to continue to try to work through their deficiencies and get this team into the postseason. Uh, is it going to happen this year? I would not bet on it. But, you know, Dave Dombrowski is an aggressive guy. He's, he's done some pretty, uh, you know, pretty aggressive outside-the-box things over the course of, of his career, and that's what I think the Phillies are banking on here at this point. That would be an ultimate admission of defeat by John Milton, and John Milton is not going to admit defeat. You don't become a billionaire by just, you know, admitting defeat and whatnot. They have so much tied up in him in terms mm-hmm. of marketing and the way that they want this franchise to, to look uh, across baseball and, and to the people in the city. And, and ultimately, if, if you traded Bryce Harper and you turned into a 105-win team, that would, that would matter way more than this thing that they have going on now. Happy but to the Nationals. Nationals. But, you know, I, I, I think that the Phillies want the marquee player. I think they want to make it work with him. And if you're Bryce Harper, I, I mean, it, it's, it would look lame for him to say, like, I'm out after, you know, two and a half years. Uh, yeah, one year one being of a which pandemic. Is a 60-game season. Mm-hmm. So I think everyone is frustrated here. I think the fact that, you know, from 2012 onward, it, it's just been the same thing, disappointment after disappointment. And it's making people, I believe, overreact to the present uh, maybe a little bit more than than they otherwise would if this was a team that hasn't just been so god-awful for, for the last 10 years now. The Reese Hoskins stands are out in full force. I don't know how, but the Phillies showed a graphic where he was like, you know, top in RBIs of first baseman, top in home runs of first baseman, blah, 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 blah. And everyone was like, look at this graphic. Reese Hoskins is awesome. Do the first basemen in the NL just suck? Or is it like... Is he actually good? Because like what, we talked about this last week where you said he's on pace for 37 home runs and 99 RBIs. And that's, again, after he just went on an 0 for 23 streak. Yes. It, like, I don't know how you can, you can play this guy. And then, and then you, can, you can also say we shouldn't trade him because there's probably going to be an NLDL in the next one, two years. So what do we do? Yeah, it's a really interesting situation and probably in some ways uh, a really like franchise uh, altering decision if, if you go to move him. Listen, there are a lot of things you could talk about with Reese Hoskins. First thing I want to talk about just right off the bat, forget baseball for a second. Let's talk about what he said about, yeah. you know, make sure you write the good things too. I know that everybody's really been on this and just crushing him on Twitter. You know, where I start with that is this. What he should have said, because this is what I think he really meant was, we almost beat Jacob DeGrom today. My teammates did a lot of good things. Zach Eflin outpitched the guy that's just been out of this world this season. I ruined it. I didn't get it done in the ninth inning, and it overshadows all of these positive things, and I hope that those things don't get lost in the shuffle. Like, I think that's really what he meant. I can't speak for the guy. But then to say, like, make sure you write the good things too, like as if it's the media's fault mm-hmm. – that the Phillies are being portrayed in this negative light. Like, bad choice of words, I would think. I don't, I'm not inside the guy's mind. I haven't talked to him since. I would think that he would like that sentence back. Uh, because, man, it just invites everything that you saw on Twitter 
everything that you've heard on the, the talk radio stations the last few days, just like, well, let's make sure we get to the positive, right? Like how we open this show. Open the show. <laughs> it's just easy to dunk on them. It's easy to dunk on him because it's just such a stupid thing to say. And it's such a representation of this organization falling short of expectations, not knowing how to win, not having a killer instinct. Like that sentence right there, like that, that presser in every way, shape and form is an embodiment of the failures of this organization, man. So good dude. I think he meant well sticking up for his teammates, but come on. Is he the leader on this team? It feels like he is. I, 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 I don't know why Bryce doesn't feel like a, a, not a leader, but the leader, but Reese seems to be the one that's like, I will be the Teflon. I'll be the armor for everybody. Yeah, it's really interesting that you asked that. I was just talking to somebody else uh, earlier today about this, and I, like almost like a rhetorical question: Why is Reese Hoskins the leader of this team? Mm-hmm. What is what has he done to be the leader of this team? I mean, he came up in what 2017, and he hit a bunch of home runs, and and we got excited about that for a little bit, and then he was okay the next couple of years. Like you said, streaky. He's had his moments, but he he's never won. He's he's doesn't consistently own the big moment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like he's this ultra clutch player where you're like, yo, he's just become the dude, right? Like he hasn't had that defining moment with the Phillies where you go, this is a guy. And so like, for me, I don't know really why he's looked at as the leader because he answers questions after bad losses. Like he'll be more in front of the media too. I I just feel like every time Bryce is in front of it, it's just like, he's making a demand, like the demand he had, like, I know we're not good but I want the front office to look and, and, and be buyers at the deadline basically. Yeah, he does two different things when he talks usually after games. It's like some message to, to yeah. the front office or to the fan base that, that he wants people to know that, that he wants to win and cares. Or he like offers a lot of cliches like, you know, we have the best hitting coach in baseball. We got to start swinging the bats. And, you know, he's a, he's a gamer. Like he, he goes through every cliche. A lot of baseball ball. talk, yeah. That's fine. Like that's, that's totally cool. Reese Hoskins is one of the few guys that will come out and answer questions and be honest with you. But like, I don't think that a willingness to speak to the media necessarily makes you a leader. Like Mm -hmm. it it just doesn't like you can, you can answer the questions and be honest and take blame, but that doesn't mean that you're a leader. And, and I think that, and again, this isn't to be critical of Reese Hoskins. I just think it demonstrates that there's a, a total lack of leadership in that clubhouse. Like they don't have killers. They don't have guys that, that seize opportunities and just drop the hammer. Like mm-hmm. that's why they don't go on prolonged win streaks. That's why they don't play well at the same time together. It's why they can't sustain momentum. They just don't have that instinct, man. And you know, that's one thing that I see now Reese Hoskins in terms of like baseball, like what do you do with this guy moving forward? There are a lot of different ways you can go. Yeah. The national League's probably going to have a designated hitter at some point. There are things in his offensive game and his profile that, that, you know, teams are going to value and the Phillies value. Um, but he's not a, a first baseman. Like, I don't think that he can play first base. But the problem is you look around the sport and there's not like a bunch of Prince fielders out there anymore that are just like these big dudes that like, you know, only DH. Like mm-hmm. most guys, like teams value versatility. Most guys can play defensively at, at a decent level. Even the guys that are primary DHs right now across the game. So it's a tough spot to be in. I almost wonder if the Phillies front office kind of said, Hey, make sure you share this graphic, you know, yeah. like trying to create some value for the guy. And like, I say that kiddingly, but when I saw it, I was like, this is a very rosy outlook for a very, very okay player. You know, they conveniently um, left batting average off of that graphic. 
Yeah, it's, he's just so streaky. And this is too streaky for me. Like, I just – I don't think you can win – with players that go through three-week stretches where they provide absolutely nothing mm-hmm. and then followed by five-game stretches where they're just out of this world. And, like, that's what he is. But there are teams that could use a, a Reese Hoskins. Yeah. They, do they want to commit to this guy for five or six years long-term when, when the arbitration years run out? Like, that's another question that you have to ask yourself because that day is coming. So, you know, if they got a decent offer, you know, with, with uh, value that, that kind of can put them in a win-now spot and clear first base for Alec Bohm to come across the diamond and, and get an off-season of work to try to be a decent first baseman, something you got to think about because God knows at third base, he, he is not – he can't stick there. He just isn't good enough. Uh, that grounder that he let go by yesterday, that's a little league play. It was a potential inning-ending double play uh, that, that cost them a run in a, in a big spot. They were sort of holding on for dear life at that point. And it's just a play that he didn't make, and it's a play – you go back to that Met series, that flare, that like humpback flare to third base. I mean, that's a play that a, a freshman baseball player makes nine times out of, of ten, mm-hmm. and, and he didn't. And it's just like – it's not just the easy ones – you know, it's not just the hard ones. It's, it's the easy ones. And it's throwing and it's fielding. It, it's not like he's got one issue here. Um, so you hold your breath when it's hit to him and you hold your breath when it's sailing across the diamond. And, and so I think for that reason, it's part of, the, part of the reason that you look at Reese Hoskins and say, like, do we, do we maybe stick this guy at well, first base long term? That's what I'm saying. Like, when, when, when you get rid of Reese Hoskins, you do whatever you want with Reese Hoskins. Are we just taking a third base Reese Hoskins and putting him in first base to just five years down the road, me and you hopefully are still talking on Wankel Wednesdays. And we're like, we just replaced Reese Hoskins with Reese Hoskins. Cause boom is, he doesn't look like him. He's, he's not, has the power of him, but he goes through those streaky, those streaky slumps too. And he, and he can't field. I mean, you said, I know when you wrote in your article, like, Hey, maybe he'll just roam around left field. Maybe left field will be the thing if they move Kutch and whatnot. Like this is ridiculous. It feels like we're, we're replacing Reese Hoskins with another Reese Hoskins. Yeah, so there's two different ways, I think, to look at Alec Bohm right now. Uh, you got to remember, like, he only played in a, a shortened season last year, wasn't even there from the start of it, really short sample, had a lot of success. He's still within his first 162 regular season games as a, as a major leaguer. Like, Can you I, fix defense? Like, I feel like it's like Ben Simmons' jump shot work. You can't really fix a jump shot five years in. Can you fix I, defense? I think he can improve defensively. Do I think he will to the point where I would trust him to be an everyday third baseman? No. But I kind of mean it more so from an offensive standpoint because I do think that, that the offensive tools are there. When you look at his approach and his physical capability and what he showed early on, I don't think that that was a mirage. Like, I think we have a good hitter here. But he, is, he has gone through it this year. You know, he had a nice June in terms of batting average, started to kind of work back a little bit. But the issue here is this. What do left fielders and first basemen have in common, which also a lot of third basemen do as well? And, and that commonality is that they can drive the baseball. They can, they can hit for power. And one thing we have not seen from Alec Bohm here is the ability to consistently drive the ball into gaps and the ability to hit the ball over the uh, fence. Mm-hmm. Is he strong enough to do it? Yes, but he hasn't. And so, like, if you're going to move Alec Bohm to first base, like, the guy can't be a, a nine-home run hitter. You know, he's got to – He's got to have pop. And that's, that's one of the concerns right now, I think, in Alec Boom's game. And, and hopefully, as he continues to, to kind of get back here on track, like he did in June, starting to hit a lot of singles, you have to hope the extra base hits start to follow as, as you get to the midway point of this year. 
Um, I wouldn't slam the panic button on Alec Boom from an offensive standpoint, but I think the writing's on the wall about what he is defensively. Speaking of offense, uh, Bryce Harper. Dude just loves a solo home run. I mean, is that just Kutch and Dubal not getting on? Is that Reese Hoskins, you know, obviously going over 35, over 23? What the hell is going on? This is getting ridiculous at some point. Yeah, two more homers on Wednesday night, both solos. Uh, it's 13 now to start the season. It's it's almost a, a statistical impossibility. Uh, it's like that, Didi going to right every yeah, every home run. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, I don't really know what to say about it. Odubel Herrera has done, I think, a, a fairly nice job offensively for the Phillies overall, but he's streaky. Reese Hoskins, as you said, is streaky. Uh, JT Romuto has been a little bit of a funk here lately. Mm-hmm. Like The guys that have hit in front of him, Andrew McCutcheon early in the year was horrible uh, hitting in front of uh, Bryce Harper. And so it's just a variety of things. They just can't seem to put it together. And this is sort of what I talked about in the beginning here, right? Like the Phillies maybe aren't as bad as the, the some of their parts suggest that they should be. Uh, they just have not, for whatever reason, been able to kind of get things going all together at once. And, and maybe that's just a sign of their, their character uh, and just kind of this inability to know how to do it at the same time and know how to win. But if you're banking on something, like if you're really holding on to hope for this team that this summer won't be a waste in terms of, of baseball and, and being competitive and fun, you know, like they have guys in this lineup that, that have been productive. And when you look at them in isolation, you feel kind of good about it. Like Andrew McCutcheon had an awesome June, mm-hmm. awesome June. Bryce Harper is, is swinging the bat here a little bit better lately. Odubel Herrera is in a funk at the end of the month, but you know, he, he's, he's gone through hot spells. Gene Segura has is, is been a really, really good player here this season. You get Didi Gregorius back. Like, I don't know, like, there's a reason to believe that maybe that they can get four or five guys hot together at the same time and they can string together some wins where this front office says like, okay, let's, let's buy some pieces and give it a shot. This division's not that good. What would be the first thing you fixed if you were the GM? Would it be pitching? Would it be hitting? What do you think? In season? Sure. For the, for the, let's think long-term. Cause I'm kind of already get, Bob, I'm, I'm, I'm about, I'm about two blown saves away from just, maybe not turning the Phillies on. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, I think that the, the biggest thing for the organization just in general is that you have to fix the, the farm system. And there, I do think there are some parts that are coming in the next couple of years that you can, you can like, you know, Mick Abel, I, I'd like, I really think that he can be a front end guy. Um, Bryson Stott is a guy that I think can come up and, and be a good player here next season. But I think they have to consistently just get this farm system back to a spot where it's just not, it's not a wasteland. Um, and so that's the biggest thing. And that's where probably the majority of my focus and efforts are going from Dave Dombrowski, looking at how do you fix this thing where you can finally grow some meaningful talent. Um, that being said, from a more practical, like 2021, 2022 standpoint, there's two things you, you have to, you have to rebuild this, this bullpen again. It's, it's just a continuing work in progress. Like it's hard to go from the worst bullpen ever to a really good bullpen in one off season. I think that they've added some pieces that are intriguing uh, that have done a decent job at different points. Um, and I think you have to continue to just try to fix that and maybe invest s- some big money in a guy that has a real track record and the stuff to go with it that can get outs in the ninth inning. They just don't have that. It's killed them for two years now. You've got to go out and get a bona fide closer. Forget this matchup stuff. Like, you got to get a killer. You got to get a guy who takes the ball, says it's the ninth inning, and I'm going to shove it. You know, that's what they need. 
Uh, that would be the biggest thing that would help this team. I think it would really instill a lot of confidence in the rest of the team. And I think it has a trickle-down effect. It's not just that you're getting good stuff in the ninth inning. It's that those relievers now in the bullpen know that they don't have to do too much. They don't have to pitch beyond what they are. I think that the players in the lineup go, yo, we built a three-run lead. Like, let's, let's friggin' go. Mm-hmm. Not like, oh, shit, who's going to blow it again tonight? So I really do think from a psychological standpoint, having a killer at the back end of the bullpen is huge. Um, and whether they get that guy in July or this winter, they got to figure it out. Do, do you think this team kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say like mentally soft, but like, you know, they do think like who's going to blow it. I, there's no doubt that runs through the bullpen and probably runs through the clubhouse. And it goes back to like, you know, who the leader is on this team. But like McCutcheon's had an MVP award. You know, Bryce Harper's had an MVP award. There's all-stars on this team. Guys who have been the top of teams and whatnot. Like, what is it? Well, I, I think that there's definitely a, a psychological element to this where they know that they're not, that they, things aren't going well, right? Like they know that things aren't, aren't happening for them right now. I also think that these guys together don't know how to win. Like, I don't think that you saw like Bryce Harper leaves Washington, right? And then they win. Like, I think that there's something to be said for just the, the flow and the chemistry of a team. And, and for whatever reason, the, the different variables on this team just don't add up together, you know? And, and that's the bottom line of it. And that, that's the biggest thing I see. And that's kind of like leads me back to the Reese Hoskins element of this. Like, do, do you trade a key piece just simply to alter the chemistry that key piece would be Hoskins I think it's I I mean I think it's gotta be I I think it's gotta be Reese Hoskins because you you can't trade Bryce Harper like to get back the return that you would need and and to admit that failure which they're not going to do you you probably have to eat 75 80 million dollars on his remaining deal I think to really get back like I'm talking premier talent like you're not trading Bryce Harper for uh you know a, a number three starter you're trading Bryce Harper to get back Fernando Tatis Jr a guy that has superstar elite potential down the line and they're not going to do that you know like so that, that's not the move JT Realmuto like do, do you trade that guy after you made this whole big deal about like we went out and got the best catcher in baseball like sometimes admitting your mistakes early can, can provide positive results but I don't see that like I just don't that's not a move the Phillies make I'd be stunned if they did something like that and then you look at what Aaron Nola do you want to trade Aaron Nola right now Who's a worse ERA than Nick Pavetta? Yeah, yeah I, I put that in store today. I mean, <laughs> Nick Pavetta has a better ERA midway through the season than Aaron Nola does, which is insane. So you're not going to trade a, a guy who has ace potential at his all-time lowest value. So, so then that brings me to Zach Wheeler. You know, the value's there. The guy in, in other years would be pitching probably the, the favorite right now in the National League or one of the top two or three favorites in the NL to be the Cy Young Award winner. And he's got a really good deal to go with it. But do you, do you trade that guy? Does he make you better? Does he alter the chemistry of your team? And, like, if the answer to that's yes, then maybe that's something you consider. But, like, I don't – if you're asking me, like, realistically, like back in, like, real life, are, are the Phillies going to trade Zach Wheeler? I don't see that. I, I don't see it. But they're also ha- – like, all these moves come with the question that, like, you have this $300 million contract staring you in the face that you're like, we can't waste his prime. We can't waste his talent. We can't waste the money on this. So it's like, you can't really trade Zach Wheeler. You can't really trade Aaron Nola. You can't trade – I don't know, someone else. Because you can't – how do you build up the farm system – when you have this 300 million albatross contract looking you in the face where it's like, we need to get, we need to get a pennant. 
maybe not a World Series out of this. It's very hard to win the World Series. We need first and NL East uh, first place. We need to get into the playoffs, and we need a pennant out of these 13 years. If you were able to detach yourself from the disappointment of this organization since, since 2012, since the run ended, and just objectively looked at the Philly situation in total, where the, the farm system's at, where it ranks across baseball, what they have coming, where they're at financially, the pieces that they have, I think that a lot of objective baseball people would come in and tell you the best thing this team could do is sell and sell That's its crazy to think. valuable parts. I really yeah. I believe that. Um, but I think the context, like you talked about with Harper being in right field where the Phillies are at, with the pressure that they have to win, uh, I don't think they will do that. I don't, I don't think they'll do that. And I, I'm not – I'm not telling you that I personally believe that that's absolutely what they should do, but I do think there's, there's some validity to that thought process. I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, like you just said, you could argue that this is the worst 10 year stretch in a franchise's history. Just it's everything amazing. about the play. They never had a plan. They, you can't tell me they had a plan. If they had a plan, they had to divert from the plan because it makes zero sense where we're at right now. It's, it's kind of interesting and it requires some revisionist history to go back through this. But like, I will tell you that, when the Phillies got to the World Series in 93, I was, I was eight years old when they lost to the Blue Jays in the World Series. And I loved baseball. But from the time I was nine through, oh, I don't know, the time I was 18, I graduated high school, the Phillies weren't back in the postseason. But at least by the early 2000s, like, yeah, they were like seven, eight years into that drought. But, like, you saw Jimmy Rollins there. Like, you saw, like, the new stadium coming. Like, you knew that they were about to make some big financial investments. Like, you knew they weren't quite ready yet, but, like, you knew it was coming. Like, you could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Right now, like, you, you don't. You don't see the light at the end of the tunnel with this. It feels like we're still in the beginning of the tunnel. Yeah. Like, and, and, and I think that. And again, it's easy to say that now because we know that Ryan Howard happened and we know that Chase Utley happened and like we know that Cole Hamels happened and, and maybe we didn't know all those things at the time and maybe we weren't like we wouldn't have looked at it in 2001 quite as like rosy as, as I do now looking back at it. And maybe those guys are coming for this team, but like it doesn't feel like it, does it? Mm-hmm. It, it kind of no. just feels like this is a team that's, that's stuck in like perfect pre-hinky purgatory with the Sixers where it was just like, we're okay. Yeah. Are we really going to win? And, and that's where it feels like the Phillies are. Man. All right. <laughs> I always like to bring the positivity when we get together. Right. Yeah. Like, but I feel like you got to keep it real. Like, no, you do. Because you, you're a hundred percent right. Like you, everything they do, they have to hit on almost everything, whether Hoskins gets traded, McCutcheon gets traded, Segura, Didi, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then they have to also hit on this draft and the next draft after that and the next draft after that, or we are going to waste a $300 million contract. Yeah. And, or, or they can just go above the luxury tax, which, you know, like I will say this, like, should they go above the luxury tax? Sure. Yeah. Because like, but are they? right. But at the same time, I will say this and, and like not in the defense of John Middleton, but like, imagine writing the checks that this dude has, has written over the last few years. And you're like, all right, like I'm one of the biggest spenders in the sport. And you're getting absolutely no return on investment. Like 17,000 people last night went out there to watch the Phillies and Marlins in a year where there were expectations, some expectations, in which people didn't have the ability to go watch a live sporting event for more than a year. And nobody's going out there because the team stinks. Like, 
you're not getting a return at the gate right now and you're not getting a return in the wing column. And so if I'm John Middleton, I'm like, I don't want to spend any more money. Like I've spent enough. You should win. Yeah. It's like taking money and putting it into the, into the Titanic, the coal, the coal room to steam at the, the same time. Like if you really do want to win, man, like you say you do, yeah, you, you need to spend more money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't know. Um, all right, let's do the unwritten rules. If you're new to this, Bob is the king of the unwritten rule. Um, this one's a little different. Um, I did you watch the College World Series last night? Probably not. Or did you see the highlights? I, I was uh, at Citizens Bank Park for 19 hours yesterday. So the last out of the of the game, down nine nothing Vanderbilt. The guy bunts. The guy bunts to third for the last out of the game. Kind of a coward move. Like go out like a man and swing at the dish. Is there an unwritten rule that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be bunting? Like were the guys like giving him shit coming back to the dugout or probably not to his face, but behind his, behind his back where they like, I can't believe, you know, Doug bunted to third for the last out of the game of the college world series. Oh man. There's so many different layers to this. Like down nine, nothing final out of the college world series. Bunting is, is lame. Okay. It is. It's lame. That's a uh, it's a, it's a violation. Whoa, 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 whoa. Get your sports radio shit out for this podcast. Violation. Podcast. Violation, cuz. Put him in the bagster? Yeah, put him in the bagster. That's a <laughs> violation. Um, yes, that, that is, that's no good. Now, people get all upset when it's like a one nothing, 2 nothing game and a guy tries to break up a no-hitter with a bunt. Like, you're trying to get on base. Like, you're trying to win a game. If you think that that's what you've got to do to break the momentum a pitcher has, I have no problem with that. But nine nothing. Like, what the hell are you trying to accomplish? Like, what's the upside of that? Like, oh, now I'm on first base with two outs down yeah. mountain runs. Like, <laughs> yeah, you got to go out swinging like a man in that situation. And you got the last, and you got the next guy coming up. You're only on deck talk. You're like, you motherfucker. Yeah. I'm gonna be the one who made the last out in the College World Series now. Like, here's the difference. Like, if you're down one or two runs and and you think there's a strategic advantage, and you get it was a pretty good bunt. The guy, the, the third baseman was behind the bag and everything. Third baseman made a great play. I'm pretty sure the guy was safe, but the ump was probably like, dude, it's nine nothing. I'm calling this guy out no matter what. You bunted, you're out. Yeah. But if you get down to first base, like this is where I would say, like how you can determine whether it's cool or not. You look into your dugout and you're going like, let's fucking go, right? Yeah. Like, like let's go. Yeah. And and the, your teammates are all like, hell yeah, like here we come. It's cool. Down nine nothing though, you drop a bunt and you get the first base and you look in the dugout. Everyone's like, "What the hell are you doing?" Yeah. So yeah, it's, that's no good. So there's there's some guys talking behind his back, being like, "I can't, I can't believe." What are you doing? Jeremy yeah. bunted down nine nothing. That's that's um, soft. Where can people get your lobster shirt? Uh, this is a uh, J Crew special. I got it at the uh, Gloucester uh, Premium Outlets in South mm-hmm. Jersey, uh, off of Forty Two. So if wow. you're coming back up from the shore. Uh, even as a PA guy, you can, you know, just stop as you, uh, approach the uh, Camden County area. Are you going on your boat later today? You're going to take your boat out? Listen, I, t- I listen, I-, I have a very stressful job and, and I work hard, but you know, you get to these summer, these summer days and sometimes just putting a couple lobsters on your shirt makes you feel a little bit relaxed, laid back, changes the vibe a little bit. I wish you had sunglasses and croquis on it to complete the look. Yeah, actually I'm wearing mesh shorts underneath this in all honesty. <laughs> No, honestly, this is one of my uh, my few unwrinkled shirts right now. So I, I rolled with it because I, you know, I know you like to yeah. clip the stuff for Twitter. So I do like to clip the stuff. I, and your lobster shirt's gonna be beautiful. You should wear more graphic tees. And I have and, a lot of uh, I have a lot of like Hawaiian shirts. Like it's my summer wardrobe, man. You're the Andy Reid of uh, of New Jersey, of Southern you know Jersey. Why? Because I I've, I've put on I'm thin everywhere. I'm pretty thin mm-hmm. guy when you look at me, but I have a beer gut because you know I I indulge. Yeah. 
And uh, these shirts, they just fit well. They kind of hide the gut. Like I can trick you into thinking I'm in good shape yeah. when I wear shirts like this. It's, it's, it is good. I mean, and, and a lot of the shirts are now, uh, I don't know if you see them on Instagram and whatnot. They're, they're catering to the guys like us because I'm skinny as well. Yeah. Do you but, get that? You get the Instagram ads now? I get it's the like, Instagram ads, your yeah. gut. I'm like, oh, yeah. this is like, a well, very good ad. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've had beer 14 straight days. Um, and then like sometimes like the V-necks are hit or miss. Like you put a V-neck on or like mm-hmm. you know, a regular you know shirt, like a dressier t-shirt. Sometimes it fits well. You look okay. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm like, is that like, there's like a little, little move action there. Yep. Yeah. The, 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 the nipples are a little bit like I can see doughier. And I see mm-hmm. that. Yeah. There's, you, you don't want to be caught fun. pinching the nips that, you know, it's just not fun. You don't want to be, you don't want to be the guy pinching his nips in the bar. So that's why I'm, I'm, I like this. It's a darker shirt. It, it kind of makes me look a little bit better when I stand up. And that's it's, just where we're nice. at. Do you, so, so going back to the clipping, do you do your hair before you come in on? Because you know that like, you know uh, that you're going to be clipped in on social media. Yeah. You like, look good. So I try not to look horrible. Like, I mean, in some of them I have like a hat on, I think. Um, sometimes I do have just a t-shirt on, but like, I try to look like, hey, you know, if you're going to put this on the internet, I don't want to look like a total scrub. So I try to you know, keep it respectable. Best, best looking beat writer from the Phillies that has ever come on this podcast. <laughs> that would make me the only one then. The only one. Uh, I see you working. Yeah. So where can people read you? Where can people find you? You can find me at crossingbroad.com. I uh, cover the Phillies uh, pretty much on the daily for those guys. I do get a couple days off here and there, but uh, you can also follow me at uh, Bob Wankel CB on Twitter. That's probably the best way to do it, man. How's the engagement? It can't be that good right now. Uh, fan engagement. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, it's usually like tell Joe Girardi he sucks or tell Joe Girardi he's an asshole. Like I, I get that a lot. Or like you know this team blows. Um, Could no you just tell Joe Girardi that that dollar bill six nine wants to tell you that you suck? And that's like my favorite thing too. Like I'll tweet something and like I know like not everybody's going to really be into it. Like during the Sixers playoff run, you could just be like, oh, Matisse is like so funny. I love him or like whatever. Like just a yeah. garbage tweet. It gets like hundreds of hundreds of likes. It's is uh, insane. Yeah. Like with me, I could do some like deep dive into yeah. like some really cool stat and it'll get like 10 likes, you know? <laughs> and I don't blame anyone because when someone says to me, who cares? I'm like, <laughs> You're right. I know. I know nobody cares. I'm going to do this. I'm just trying to do my job. The who, ca- the who cares has to sting a little bit when you're, when you're putting your head down at night and on the pillow and it's just like, that motherfucker. No, I try to go hard. Like you read the story, like you at least opened the story and saw some of what I wrote after this, this last Phillies loss, whatever. Like it's a 1250 word story. It's a beast. And yeah. like, I try to keep it fun. I'm not trying to like go like straight analytics. Like I try to do it conversationally. But I want to, like, give something a little bit different. Like, I'm not going to be able to get the sources right now that dudes at the Daily News or the Inquirer get. Like, those guys are great. They're sourced. They know people throughout the organization. I'm relatively new. So I can't write the same stuff those guys write. I got to put a different angle on it. So I try to, like, be a little bit more fun, a little bit laid back, go deep. But I'm, I like, think- thinking myself, I'm like, yo, 1,250 words on the friggin' Phillies-Marlins game on a Wednesday night? Like, ooh, that's so, a tough ask. It's a hard worker right there. I mean, I, the way I like you is because you're the baseball bro. Yeah. All you're right. the baseball I, bro. I go for that. And that's your, that's your niche. And you should, you should cater to other baseball bros. I like, uh, who writes for the athletic? Is it Breen? No. Uh, the athletic is Gelb. He's, he's Gelb. Honestly, honestly, in my opinion, probably one of the, the best writers in the city. Uh, well, honestly, in my opinion, when he puts a graph in there, I don't want to read it. Yeah. And I, yeah, read, I read the baseball bro. 
I read the guy who I know is going to be slugging some beers, slugging some IPAs on the weekend, and just wants to talk shop, wants to chop up some sports and talk and talk a little bit of Phil's baseball. No, that's, that's my guy. Definitely the, uh, the type of approach we try to take. So if you're into that type of thing, you haven't been reading, give it a shot. All right, go read the baseball bro at Crossing Broad. Bob, as always, Wankle Fridays. This is a good one, but I can't wait for next week to do Wankle Wednesdays. Have a good holiday, all right? All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks to Rich Hoffman. Thanks to Bob Wankel for coming on. If you enjoyed that, consider rating, reviewing, subscribing. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. We have a TikTok as well. Follow that. And if you want to do YouTube on your 55-inch TCL TVs, your Vizios, your LGs, you can watch this big head in person, live, on YouTube. Search everything's fine. Have a rest of the day. Have a good holiday weekend. Go America again. Back-to-back World War Champions. And uh, I'll talk to you Wednesday. <laughs>